Hello, this is Eric Griffith, producer of the Sausage of Science podcast. The show is currently on summer hiatus as most of our staff work on their research. New episodes will be back in the fall. In the meantime, we have a special bonus episode of the pod today. Professor Joe Graves of North Carolina A&T University reads an excerpt from his book, A Voice in the Wilderness. The Barnes & Noble website describes the book as such. Evolutionary science has long been regarded as conservative, a tool for enforcing regressive ideas, particularly about race and gender. But in A Voice in the Wilderness, evolutionary biologist Joseph L. Graves Jr., once styled as the Black Darwin, argues that his field is essential to social justice. He shows, for example, why biological races do not exist. He dismantles recent work in human diversity, seeking genes to explain the achievements of different ethnic groups. He decimates homophobia, sexism, and classism as well. As a pioneering black biologist, a leftist, and a Christian, Graves uses his personal story, his journey from a child of Jim Crow to a major researcher and leader of his peers, to rewrite his field. A Voice in the Wilderness is a powerful work of scientific anti-racism and a moving account of a trailblazing life. The following audio excerpt from the book covers pages 153 to 165. This is Joseph L. Graves, Jr., and this is also an excerpt from A Voice in the Wilderness. A pioneering biologist explains how evolution can help us solve our biggest problems. A book that should be read by everyone. The Emperor's New Clothes. Many have argued that The Emperor's New Clothes, Biological Theories of Race at the Millennium, is the most important of my scholarly achievements. It is by far my most cited publication with almost twice as many citations on Google Scholar as my most cited papers in fruit fly or bacterial research. My decision to write the book, like so many decisions one makes in life, was a mixture of serendipity and the personal tragedy I was experiencing at the time. My work addressing the claims surrounding race, genes, and intelligence in the bell curve had already convinced me that it was important to develop a course that exposed students to the history of biological determinism and its ongoing role in supporting racial hierarchy. Biological determinism is the notion that individuals' biology, mainly their genes, is a primary determinant of where they end up in society. This idea underlies all theories of meritocracy. As I developed the course, I also began to realize that this message needed to reach a wider audience. This realization was in part stimulated by two panels I was asked to participate on at the annual meetings of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, AAAS. The panels, Is Race a Legitimate Concept for Science, in Atlanta, in Georgia of 1995, and The Developing Brain, Genes, Environment, Behavior in Baltimore, Maryland in 1996. At the first, I shared the platform with several luminary scholars, including Jane Manshein, Arizona State University, and C. Loring Brace, University of Michigan. Jane was a close colleague and is one of the most intellectually fearless of all the scholars I have known throughout my career. It was her idea to hold a panel. Brace was the great-grandson of the 19th century philanthropist Charles Loring Brace, who founded the New York Children's Aid Society, among other works. C. Loring Brace, along with Frank Livingstone, made important contributions 
to demonstrating that human physical change is continuous across the planet. Continuity of physical change is important because it means that using such change to define racial groups rapidly becomes a set of arbitrary delineations. A perfect example of this is skin color. It changes continuously from the tropics to the Arctic zones. So when do we say that a particular reflectivity of skin separates groups? Clearly, Nigerians have darker skin than Swedes, but what about North Africans and Sardinians? Having the opportunity to be embraced as presence was humbling. He was a physical anthropologist who at the University of Michigan maintained one of the large collections of human skeletons in the world. Brace would say that if you gave him a skeleton, he could use biometric tools to tell you exactly where it came from on the planet. However, this didn't mean that physical traits could be used to create biological races. I didn't know Brace when I was at Michigan, but through my conversation with him in Atlanta, I learned of Ashley Montague's work and Montague's classic book, Man's Most Dangerous Myth, The Fallacy of Race, originally published in 1942. Montague was born Israel Ehrenberg. He studied at the University of London. He became a giant in anthropology. In addition to his work on race, he is best known for his intellectual assaults on a number of commonly held fallacies. In the 1950s, he was one of the first people to recognize that the Piltdown Man Fossil was a fraud. He wrote of the natural superiority of women and attacked the notion that humans are innately aggressive. He outlined the importance of touch for human development. Probably one of the most important things about him was his recognition that scholars had an important obligation to bring their findings to the public. He gave up his academic position to fo focus on writing popular works on the topics above was also at one of these meetings, probably the one in Baltimore, that a science editor, Helen Hsu from Rutgers University Press, approached me about writing a book about my ideas. It is a common practice for academic press editors to approach panelists whose talks they find interesting. Their serendipity here was that Hsu had had the foresight to see the potential of my project and to consider working with someone who had never written a book before. We discussed the course I was teaching, Genes, Race, and Society, and she felt it would be worth turning into a book. GRS studied the history of science, particularly of ideas associated with the origin and significance of human biological diversity, alongside the social events that were occurring in conjunction with the development of those ideas. The design of my course was influenced by a course I had experienced during my graduate years at the University of Michigan, see chapter one. John Vandermeer, probably the most influential of my former mentors in this regard, taught a course entitled Biology, and human affairs. The course was for non-majors and covered a variety of topics, including sexism, racism, and anti-gay bigotry. Student responses to the course were bimodal. It was adored by progressive students and dubbed, quote, commie bio by reactionaries. I made a conscious decision with GRS to focus primarily on racism and to teach it via the lens of the African-American experience, not because the racial oppression of other groups is less horrific, but simply because I understand and had lived in the society under anti-Black racism. Thus, my course was taught in both the life sciences and ethnic studies departments. A subsidiary goal of offering the course in both departments was to facilitate discussion between students, science, and humanity majors, who often never spoke to each other on any topics of substance. My approach to the topics to be included in the Emperor's New Clothes was not completely unique. Such books, have been written before. A very good example is Alan Chase's book, The Legacy of Malthus. The book on the history of scientific racism is a tour de force. 
However, Chase was a historian and had limited facility with the underlying science covered in his work. The book also covered scientific racism in its general context. The Emperor's New Clothes, on the other hand, was designed to tie together events in the history of science and the way their applications directly affected African-Americans. My capacity to achieve this was very much related to the time I spent out of the academy and reading voraciously about topics in African-American history, sociology, economics, political science, and philosophy. See chapter four. My personal tragedy associated with writing the Emperor's New Clothes began on New Year's Eve in 1995. We were spending it in Redondo Beach, California with my brother Warren, his wife Dee Dee, and many of our extended family members. My cousin Darlene's husband Craig was an assistant coach of Northwestern University's Wildcats and brought us tickets to see the Rose Bowl. That night, all my brother and I managed to do was get into one argument after another. Finally, it got to the point where I had had enough. My wife and I swept up our children, loaded them in our minivan, and headed back to Arizona, leaving the tickets to another family member. The next day, he called me, apologized for his bad behavior, and told me he had less than a year to live. Warren was dying of HIV AIDS. He was not sure how he had contracted it, but he thought it could have happened during one of the many emergency room shifts he took on during his residency. He told me what those shifts were like in underfunded and understaffed inner city hospitals. One night a patient had been left on a stretcher in the emergency room. The patient was unattended and no one seemed to know what was wrong. Warren quickly examined the patient, realized he was in bad shape, and ran all the labs needed to determine the correct course of treatment. That night, there was an insignificant or insufficient staff on duty, so he had to run the samples around the hospital himself. He eventually saved the patient's life, but that hospital situation was unfortunately all too typical in the emergency rooms of the hospitals he moonlighted for. He believed that during one of those shifts, he'd accidentally cut himself during a procedure, therefore exposing himself to HIV-tainted blood. News of his condition hit me hard. I did not react well, and the next few years were a struggle to balance my grief with the requirements of my personal life. As he was getting sicker, I sank deeper into depression. Up to this point, I had not sought personal counseling. I believed that under no circumstances could I reveal to the academic community the depths of emotional pain I was laboring under every day. Nor could I do so at home, as I was the father of young children. I went to work each day and gave no indication to those around me that anything was wrong. Partially, I felt that as a leader of an NIH training program, I could not let on to my staff or student mentees that there was anything wrong with me. Imposter syndrome was still with me, almost like a chronic biological infection that was resistant to any antimicrobial treatment. I still deeply believed that the Academy never forgave any weakness in African-American men. Indeed, the more talented those men were, the more unforgiving the Academy. As Warren got sicker, I began to drink more. By most definitions of alcoholism, I was almost even if not fully there. I behaved like many of the African-American men of my generation, unable to admit that I needed help. I also impacted the lives of my wife and children. I was not making excuses, but simply explaining that I was in a bad way. And it was not just my brother, but also other members of my family, aunts and uncles who were dying before their time. Nor, as my research in the emperor's new clothes would demonstrate, 
was it only my family who were dying at differential rates? The sad reality began to stimulate my thinking about the sources of health disparity. My own experience made it easy to understand why my mother was always so sick. I experienced the toxic atmosphere she was forced to endure. For years, she worked in the plastics packaging plant. After a while, anyone working there would become nose blind to the fumes coming off the materials they packaged. In the summer, before I started college, I worked in there loading plastic vials into the print machines. That was enough for a lifetime. It was a major motivation pushing me to finish my college degree. I promised myself I would never go back to working in a hellish place like that. During my research for the emperor's new clothes, I also asked myself why all my uncles, paternal and maternal, drank more than they should. Why was this behavior passed down to them from the previous generation? Of course, genetic determinists had a ready-made answer to this question, genetic predisposition for substance abuse. My knowledge of the complex genetics of behavior had already convinced me that the simple genetic answers for alcoholism couldn't be correct. Yet even at this time, pedigree analysis suggested that alcoholism was inherited in families. Modern genome-wide association studies calculate the genetic contribution to alcoholism at about 50%. Not surprising, given that the same areas of the brain that control substance abuse of all kinds are also associated with pleasure-seeking of all kinds. Natural selection would clearly favor these genes if pleasure-seeking had a strong association with reproductive success. In the case of the fatty and sweet food pleasure-seeking axis, there's strong evidence for such an association. In ancient environments, those foods were scarce, and individuals who succeeded in procuring them would have had a caloric advantage over others, resulting in their greater reproductive success. This means that these genetic variants are found in all human populations at high frequency. Thus, the substance, sex, food, and gambling abuse we observe today results from evolutionary mismatch. Our Pleistocene brains are now being exposed to conditions that didn't exist when those behaviors seeking these things improved in individuals' reproductive chances. Now, in a world where all these things exist in excess, formally adaptive behaviors can easily be destructive. However, 50% genetic also means 50% environmental. It was already clear to me what sorts of environmental conditions led to a greater likelihood of substance abuse. Organisms, including people that are socially subordinated, are more likely to engage in substance abuse. By the early 1990s, experiments with rodents and primates had shown this conclusively. For example, experiment using inbred, identical genetic, back, uh, genetic background, Wistar rats showed that socially deprived individuals chose to consume 30% more alcohol and diazepam, a drug used to treat anxiety disorders and alcohol withdrawal, than non-deprived rats. Similar effects have been found in recent monkeys. Subsequent studies had shown a strong relationship between social dysfunction and alcohol and other substance abuse in humans. For example, the Stalinist government of the Soviet Union used to encourage alcohol use as a method of social control. The collapse of the Soviet Union was associated with an increase in alcoholism among former party bureaucrats. Among Swedes, a disintegrated social environment is a major predictor of alcoholism. In the United States, socially defined race and socioeconomic status is a major predictor of potential alcoholism. These facts also support another theory suggesting another evolutionary mechanism explaining substance abuse. This theory posits 
at a very early on in our existence, humans learned to use plants for self-medication. The practice began in societies with relative social equality. It's easy to see how in a rigid social hierarchy, the practice of self-medication could rapidly become substance abuse. I also thought about the fact that one of the most underappreciated aspects of health disparity in a racialized society is the impact it has on the families of the sick and dying. I am absolutely convinced that my brother's illness accelerated the death of my mother, who was his primarily ca primary caregiver in his last years. In chapter 11 of The Emperor's New Clothes, I showed that the mortality rate disparity between African-Americans and European-Americans was highest in midlife. This was true throughout the portions of the 20th century for which data are available. It was also probably true during the 19th and 18th centuries as well. The social and economic consequences of this are profound. Midlife, 40 to 50, is when most people are entering the height of their earning ability in either blue or white collar jobs. In the United States, this is also when people are beginning to pay off mortgages. The children of people in this age group are usually in their teens or early adulthood, a period when parental mentorship is extremely important. However, you cannot provide material support or mentorship to your children if you are dead. Thus, I have argued this mortality disparity is a major contributing factor to the ongoing wealth gap, now tenfold for European Americans over African Americans. The hardest part of this period of my life was taking my brother home to die in late 1997. This was before the advent of combination retroviral therapy. So for most people, HIV AIDS infection was a death sentence. Earlier that year, Didi had also died of HIV AIDS. They had been married for about five years and it was never clear whether they married knowing they were both HIV positive. However, learning they were both positive explained a lot of their earlier behavior, including the fact that they spent money as if they had a printing press in their basement. Soon after his wife died, my brother began to suffer from age-related dementia, a condition that occurs because during the course of primary infection, HIV enters the brain via infected lymphocytes and monocytes. It has been shown that the basal ganglia and the frontal white matter are the earliest and most intensely affected brain regions. There's a positive correlation between the amount of virus and viral products, particularly the proteins GP120 and UDGP41, in a patient and the extent of histopathologic changes in his or her brain. These viral products may also be related to the hypersexual behavior often associated with age-related dementia. Of course, from the virus's perspective, natural selection would highly favor altering the host's behavior to increase its spread. However, it is not clear that this is what drives the hypersexuality often associated with age-related dementia. I took my brother home. We flew out of LAX. The difference between taking him to California to begin his life there and taking him back home to end his life was like the chasm between heaven and hell. Up to this point, I had only experienced the deaths of grandparents, aunts, and uncles. However, I didn't have to watch them decline to death. In my college years, I would get on a phone call from my mother telling me someone in the family had passed away. This was a very different thing. On this journey, I was sitting next to someone I had spent so much time with, played with, and fought with all my life. Now I was watching him pass into greater infirmity with every air mile closer to home. By a cruel irony, he was dying of the same disease that had killed his childhood hero, Arthur Ashe. 
A year later on the night before he died, I dreamed of him passing upward into a great light and of me begging him not to go. I woke up in a cold sweat, breathing hard. Just as I awakened from the dream, the phone rang. It was my sister Alice telling me it was time to come home. I got the earliest flight I could out of Phoenix Sky Harbor Airport and arrived at Newark Airport after seven in the evening. My sister picked me up and we proceeded directly to the hospital. The setup of his hospital room showed that he was dying of encephalitis. During our last talk, he kept pointing to the corner of the room as if someone was standing there. When visiting hours concluded, I said goodbye to him saying, Warren, I'll see you in the morning. His last words to me were, no, you won't. When we arrived at my parents' house in Westfield, the phone rang. It was the hospitals calling us to inform us that he was gone. The stories of people hanging on near death to see loved ones are known to be apocryphal. However, in this case, I felt that is exactly what he did.